This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Accessory Before the Fact by Algernon Blackwood. The narrator is Greg Marguerite. The story was first published in the Westminster Gazette in September 1911. After the story, listen for our discussion of it. Accessory Before the Fact by Algernon Blackwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Accessory Before the Fact by Algernon Blackwood At the Moreland Crossroads, Martin stood examining the signpost for several minutes in some bewilderment. The names on the four arms were not what he expected. Distances were not given, and his map, he concluded with impatience, must be hopelessly out of date. Spreading it against the post, he stooped to study it more closely. The wind blew the corners flapping against his face. The small print was almost indecipherable in the fading light. It appeared, however, as well as he could make out, that two miles back he must have taken the wrong turning. He remembered that turning. The path had looked inviting. He had hesitated a moment, then followed it, caught by the usual lure of walkers that it might prove a shortcut. The shortcut snare is old as human nature. For some minutes he studied the signpost and the map alternately. Dusk was falling, and his knapsack had grown heavy. He could not make the two guides tally, however, and a feeling of uncertainty crept over his mind. He felt oddly baffled, frustrated. His thought grew thick. Decision was most difficult. I'm muddled, he thought. I must be tired. As at length he chose the most likely arm. Sooner or later it will bring me to an inn, though not the one I intended. He accepted his walker's luck and started briskly. The arm read, Over Lidicy Hill, in small, fine letters that danced and shifted every time he looked at them, but the name was not discoverable on the map. It was, however, inviting, like the shortcut. A similar impulse again directed his choice. Only this time it seemed more insistent, almost urgent, and he became aware then of the exceeding loneliness of the country about him. The road for a hundred yards went straight, then curved like a white river running into space. The deep blue-green of heather lined the banks, spreading upwards through the twilight, and occasional small pines stood solitary here and there, all unexplained. The curious adjective, having made its appearance, haunted him. So many things that afternoon were similarly unexplained. The shortcut the darkened map, the names on the signpost, his own erratic impulses, and the growing strange confusion that crept upon his spirit. The entire countryside needed explanation, though perhaps interpretation was the truer word. Those little lonely trees had made him see it. Why had he lost his way so easily? Why did he suffer vague impressions to influence his direction? Why was he here, exactly here, and why did he go now over Lidicy Hill? 
Then, by a green field that shone like a thought of daylight amid the darkness of the moor, he saw a figure lying in the grass. It was a blot upon the landscape, a mere huddled patch of dirty rags, yet with a certain horrid picturesqueness, too. And his mind, though his German was of the schoolroom order, at once picked out the German equivalents as against the English. Lump and lumpen flashed across his brain most oddly. They seemed in that moment right and so expressive, almost like onomatopoetic words, if that were possible of sight. Neither rags nor rascal would have fitted what he saw. The adequate description was in German. Here was a clue tossed up by the part of him that did not reason. But it seems he missed it. And the next minute the tramp rose to a sitting posture and asked the time of evening. In German he asked it, and Martin, answering without a second's hesitation, gave it also in German. Alb sieben. Half past six. The instinctive guess was accurate. A glance at his watch when he looked a moment later proved it. He heard the man say, with the covert insolence of tramps, Thank you. Much obliged. For Martin had not shown his watch. Another intuition subconsciously obeyed. He quickened his pace along that lonely road, a curious jumble of thoughts and feelings surging through him. He had somehow known the question would come, and come in German. Yet it flustered and dismayed him. Another thing had also flustered and dismayed him. He had expected it in the same queer fashion. It was right, for when the ragged brown thing rose to ask the question, a part of it remained lying on the grass, another brown, dirty thing. There were two tramps, and he saw both faces clearly, behind the untidy beards and below the old slouch hats. He caught a look of unpleasant, clever faces that watched him closely while he passed. The eyes followed him. For a second he looked straight into those eyes so that he could not fail to know them, and he understood quite horridly that both faces were too sleek, refined, and cunning for those of ordinary tramps. The men were not really tramps at all. They were disguised. How covertly they watched me! was his thought, as he hurried along the darkening road, aware in dead earnestness now of the loneliness and desolation of the moorland all about him. Uneasy and distressed, he increased his pace. Midway, in thinking what an unnecessarily clanging noise his nailed boots made upon the hard white road, there came upon him with a rush together the company of these things that haunted him as unexplained. They brought a single definite message that all this business was not really meant for him at all, and hence his confusion and bewilderment, that he had intruded into someone else's scenery and was trespassing upon another's map of life. By some wrong inner turning he had interpolated his person into a group of foreign forces which operated in the little world of someone else. Unwittingly, somewhere, he had crossed the threshold and now was fairly in a trespasser, an eavesdropper, a peeping Tom. He was listening, peeping, overhearing things he had no right to know because they were intended for another. Like a ship at sea, he was intercepting wireless messages he could not properly interpret because his receiver was not accurately tuned to their reception. And more, these messages were warnings. Then fear dropped upon him like the night. 
He was caught in a net of delicate deep forces he could not manage, knowing neither their origin nor purpose. He had walked into some huge psychic trap, elaborately planned and baited, yet calculated for another than himself. Something had lured him in, something in the landscape, the time of day, his mood. Owing to some undiscovered weakness in himself, he had been easily caught. His fear slipped easily into terror. What happened next happened with such speed and concentration that it all seemed crammed into a moment. At once, and in a heap, it happened. It was quite inevitable. Down the white road to meet him a man came swaying from side to side in drunkenness, quite obviously feigned. A tramp, and while Martin made room for him to pass, the lurch changed in a second to attack and the fellow was upon him. The blow was sudden and terrific, yet even while it fell Martin was aware that behind him rushed a second man who caught his legs from under him and bore him with a thud and crash to the ground. Blows rained then. He saw a gleam of something shining. A sudden deadly nausea plunged him into utter weakness where resistance was impossible. Something of fire entered his throat and from his mouth poured a thick sweet thing that choked him. The world sank far away into darkness, yet through all the horror and confusion ran the trail of two clear thoughts. He realized that the first tramp had sneaked at a fast double through the heather and so come down to meet him, and that something heavy was torn from fastenings that clipped it tight and close beneath his clothes against his body. Abruptly, then, the darkness lifted, passed utterly away. He found himself peering into the map against the signpost. The wind was flapping the corners against his cheek, and he was poring over names that now he saw quite clear. Upon the arms of the signpost above were those he had expected to find, and the map recorded them quite faithfully. All was accurate again, and as it should be. He read the name of the village he had meant to make. It was plainly visible in the dusk. Two miles, the distance given. Bewildered, shaken, unable to think of anything, he stuffed the map into his pocket unfolded and hurried forward like a man who has just wakened from an awful dream that had compressed into a single second all the detailed misery of some prolonged oppressive nightmare. He broke into a steady trot that soon became a run. The perspiration poured from him, his legs felt weak, and his breath was difficult to manage. He was only conscious of the overpowering desire to get away as fast as possible from the signpost at the crossroads where the dreadful vision had flashed upon him. For Martin, accountant on a holiday, had never dreamed of any world of psychic possibilities. The entire thing was torture. It was worse than a cooked balance of the books that some conspiracy of clerks and directors proved at his innocent door. He raced as though the countryside ran crying at his heels and always still ran with him the incredible conviction that none of this was really meant for himself at all. He had overheard the secrets of another. He had taken the warning for another into himself and so altered its direction. He had thereby prevented its right delivery. It all shocked him beyond words. It dislocated the machinery of his just and accurate soul. The warning was intended for another, who could not, would not, now receive it. The physical exertion, however, brought at length a more comfortable reaction and some measure of composure. With the lights in sight, he slowed down and entered the village at a reasonable pace. 
The inn was reached, a bedroom inspected and engaged, and supper ordered with the solid comfort of a large bass to satisfy an unholy thirst and complete the restoration of balance. The unusual sensations largely passed away, and the odd feeling that anything in his simple, wholesome world required explanation was no longer present. Still, with a vague uneasiness about him, though actual fear quite gone, he went into the bar to smoke an after-supper pipe and chat with the natives, as his pleasure was upon a holiday, and so saw two men leaning upon the counter at the far end with their backs toward him. He saw their faces instantly in the glass, and the pipe nearly slipped from beneath his teeth. Clean-shaven, sleek, clever faces, and he caught a word or two as they talked over their drinks. German words. Well-dressed they were, both men, with nothing about them calling for particular attention. They might have been two tourists, holiday-making like himself in tweeds and walking boots, and they presently paid for their drinks and went out. He never saw them face to face at all, but the sweat broke out afresh all over him. A feverish rush of heat and ice together ran about his body. Beyond question he recognized the two tramps, this time not disguised. Not yet disguised. He remained in his corner without moving, puffing violently at an extinguished pipe, gripped helplessly by the return of that first vile terror. It came again to him with an absolute clarity of certainty that it was not with himself they had to do, these men, and, further, that he had no right in the world to interfere. He had no locus standi at all. It would be immoral, even if the opportunity came. And the opportunity, he felt, would come. He had been an eavesdropper, and had come upon private information of a secret kind that he had no right to make use of. Even that good might come, even to save life. He sat in his corner, terrified and silent, waiting for the thing that should happen next. But night came without explanation. Nothing happened. He slept soundly. There was no other guest at the inn but an elderly man, apparently a tourist like himself. He wore gold-rimmed glasses, and in the morning Martin overheard him asking the landlord what direction he should take for Lidacy Hill. His teeth began then to chatter, and a weakness came into his knees. You, you turn left at the crossroads, Martin broke in before the landlord could reply. You'll see the signpost about two miles from here, and after that it's a matter of four more miles. How in the world did he know? Flashed horribly through him. I'm going that way myself, he was saying next. I'll go with you for a bit, if you don't mind. The words came out impulsively and ill-considered. Of their own accord they came, for his own direction was exactly opposite. He did not want the man to go alone. The stranger, however, easily evaded his offer of companionship. He thanked him with the remark that he was starting later in the day. They were standing, all three, beside the horse trough in front of the inn, when at the very moment a tramp slouching along the road looked up and asked the time of day, and it was the man with the gold-rimmed glasses who told him. Thank you. Much obliged, the tramp replied, passing on with his slow, slouching gait, while the landlord, a talkative fellow, proceeded to remark upon the number of Germans that lived in England, and were ready to swell the Teutonic invasion which he, for his part, deemed imminent. But Martin heard it not. Before he had gone a mile upon his way, he went into the woods to fight his conscience all alone. 
His feebleness, his cowardice, were surely criminal. Real anguish tortured him. A dozen times he decided to go back upon his steps, and a dozen times the singular authority that whispered he had no right to interfere prevented him. How could he act upon knowledge gained by eavesdropping? How interfere in the private business of another's hidden life merely because he had overheard, as at the telephone, its secret dangers? Some inner confusion prevented straight thinking altogether. The stranger would merely think him mad. He had no fact to go upon. He smothered a hundred impulses, and finally went on his way with a shaking, troubled heart. The last two days of his holiday were ruined by doubts and questions and alarms, all justified later when he read of the murder of a tourist upon Lydicy Hill. The man wore gold-rimmed glasses and carried in a belt about his person a large sum of money. His throat was cut and the police were hard upon the trail of a mysterious pair of tramps, said to be Germans. End of Accessory Before the Fact by Algernon Blackwood Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. And I'm Greg. Hello. Great, you're the narrator of the audiobook we just heard. I am indeed. I really like this story, but I don't understand it very well. It's a... <laughs> It's the second Algernon Blackwood story I think I've read. Well, I mean, I in my head when I categorize this these types of authors, you know, this is he's kind of like Wilkie Collins, and you know, just from that era where the concept of ethereal planes was so new that that could be the hook in your story where instead of a detail which is what it is today and so the importance of that is lost on us it's like when you see things that are you know redone like uh, uh you know laurel and hardy is actually gilligan in the skipper and if you grew <laughs> up well, it, it truly is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Maybe, Except it's it, the other way around, right? Gilligan and the Skipper are Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I meant, you know, the progenitors, Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, yeah. But, but if you grew up watching Gilligan's Island and you go back and watch Laurel and Hardy, you're like, well, I've seen that gag, even though they're doing it better. I guess and, it's Harold and Kumar now or something, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I just think that the, the central idea was supposed to be more impressive it, it was more impressive then than it is to us now. Um, I, I I really am intrigued at what's going on in the story, but I I have a feeling it's a lot less interesting than I'm. It's going on in my head because every time I read it, I say, "Okay, I think I understand what's exactly what the author's trying to say." I still don't understand what phenomenon he's describing. Well, that's that's an interesting point because I've read stuff about this story that says it's one of the first time slip stories. And yeah, this is, this is what, not a, it's not a time said. slip. That's it's what a, I was, yeah, it's kind I of, thought it was a vision interception. Right. He's precognitive. Right. He's, he doesn't go back in time. He doesn't actually get hit and beaten up. He's fine when he wakes up. So he's a precog. He just, he just was in the wrong place at the wrong time and had, a vision of the future. He didn't actually go there. I mean, I, least... I accept that, except except for the one big thing that doesn't fit that, and that is um, is that he has a abiding feeling that he can't 
tell anybody about this, especially the guy who it was supposed to be for. And that guy's the 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 old the elderly man with glasses. Right. Why can't he tell that guy? Uh, that makes no sense to me. Uh, I. I don't, I'm not sure how to. I mean, there is an overriding paranoia built into the story, certainly in all directions, and I think that's supposed to be the motivation for, you know, it, it, it's a the paranoia and b the fact that he doesn't want to say I've had a precognitive event and think you're about to get beat up. I mean, I would take that with as much, uh, you know, veracity as I would if someone came came up to me and said I had a dream last night that you were going to fall off a cliff. I would not avoid cliffs. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, I hear you. So, so I appreciate that person telling me that, but, but that, you know, that statement is of no value. Is it more of a taboo back in those days? Like, would he be burned at the stake for saying that he had a vision? (laughs) I think it would be less of a taboo. Yeah, because everybody's spiritualized back then. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing but ghost stories before science fiction for that, for that fantasy element like that. So it's uh it's it, 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 the um the other thing that's you know stands out so obviously to us I guess maybe it it was supposed to stand out back then too is is the germanophobia the fear of germans right bad guys are germans yeah. why do they kill that guy oh they're just you know you can't trust germans they're taking over the country <laughs> it's like okay it's a pre world war 1 I, I got I got that they don't like germans in england but uh is that just a coincidence to the whole, uh, you know, got to have some bad guys. Ah, let's make them Germans. Is that what, what is it? I think that there was a time when it was more acceptable to, to put your bigotry on display in your writing. Um, and you know, if you read like L Frank Baum's actual, you know, personal writings, his, he thought the Indians were, or excuse me, the Native Americans were, you know, subhuman, and we were just going to have to kill them all, and <laughs> it, and that was acceptable back then. And I think this fear of, uh, I don't think there's so much Teutonic invasion is what, yeah, the, yeah, is, yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. he says uh, the landlord says, and and I I thought, oh, the landlord is speaking for Blackwood, I guess. And also, you know, it's justified because look, they're they're murderers. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not going to go there. I mean, they're they're just bad guys to me, and there are bad guys everywhere. So, but but yeah, I think that was a hook. It was an acceptable thing to put in your writing. It was a popular, you know, opinion at the time, and so you stuck it in. What does Teutonic um, mean? I oh yeah, it means German. Yeah. Oh, okay. A Teuton. German. Um, I'm wondering though, the way the story starts, we don't know we're in uh, his precognitive uh, vision or whatever. He he's just wandering around the landscape, and everything's a little bit strange, and he he's sort of dreamlike situation. And then after he feels uh, I, in what I think is a really good scene, uh, you know, they attack him, and he feels uh, a burning in his throat. And then something hot coming out of his mouth. And I said, like, oh, he's just had his throat cut. Yeah. Lovely. Right. Um, and then he slips into darkness and then, uh, the darkness fades away and he's standing at the, 
at the uh, crossroads again. And I was thinking, oh, okay, well, that's a nice symbol, right? He's standing at the crossroads of life and death and blah, blah, blah. But it, it, it's it, because it starts in the middle of the vision rather than, you know, he's walking along and then suddenly feels strange. Uh, and that resonated with me, th- making me think that um, he is the, actually the guy who's going to get murdered. And that uh, the guy, the uh, unnamed elderly man with the gold rimmed glasses was him in some way. And yet that makes no sense because he's elderly. And, and yet if you look at the parallels, they're both tourists. Uh, they both go to the same place that there's that echo right near the end where uh, they're standing outside of the pub and, and a German comes by and says, what time is it? Yeah. I, well, I was thinking maybe there's not four characters in this story. There's only three. And well, how would I, that I mean, work? I guess you could take his uh, exuberant response to the guy telling him how to get to the place and get to the crossroads. I mean, he actually assisted the Germans when you come right down to it. Um, may feed into that, but but I I think you're peeling away layers of an onion. <laughs> And eventually there's all I'm left with is a stinky smell and yeah. and, and no onion. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's, I take this story more on face value than on, I, I agree there's layers and there's always, you know, post structuralist intentions that were not part of the author's, you know, intent and all that sort of stuff is going on there. But, but the signifiers, which is what critical theorists look at are there's only a few and they're very simple. And, um, you know, it's more of a formula, mm. I guess. Um, what, what, what about the, uh, you know, we we're talking about, a being a time slip earlier. What about, right. uh, it being something related to deja vu? Deja vu is something, you know, everybody seems to experience. I had an incident earlier, uh, I guess late last year. I was like, man, this feels really familiar. And yet there's no strong evidence that I could find that I could match it up to something in the past. Um, his vision could be uh, like an extended version of deja vu in a sense, depending on how much time it takes place. But but the actions that happen sort of belie the the, the main ideas of deja vu is, is the situation you're in now feels familiar, but <laughs> the situation he's in then is he's walking along. Somebody else, right? A bunch of things are all deja vu. And I, I think I've read about people who can experience, uh, you know, deja vu constantly. Everything seems like it's a reflect, like you, they get some sort of brain problem and they, right. they believe at all times, everything is deja vu. Right. It's a neurochemical state. It's it's very strange when, one when you process and remember at the same time, because it's it's similar to our computers. I mean, the, the process of recognizing what things are and what cells in your eyes are devoted to what movements and what shapes and all that sort of stuff. Um, it, it's written to the hard drive and there's a time lag in there and it's possible for you to perceive and remember at the exact same moment 
and that's what's going on. This is, I mean, I understand where you're going with it. It's it's more of a precognitive event. That's yeah. what I'm saying. You you actually saw slash felt the future. So and it, uh, he was embodied in it too, and it wasn't like, uh, you know, it, he he is doing the actions in the story. There's a dreamlike quality to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know when he's looking at his map, he can't make the map uh, match the match the uh, the the signs, and he can't even read the the at the signposts. He can only read one of the the signposts. All, all the other letters are jumbled. That that's very much like a dream, but it's like a waking dream, and so it's not. Yeah, I don't think it is deja vu. Uh, but I've never had a precognitive event. I don't know. Is this? Uh, something other than <laughs> do you know anybody who claims to have i i i personally don't believe in the category of precognitive event that um uh, most of our psychics claim to have but i do suspect that the theory the quantum theory that states that everything happens at once and there is no such thing as time that's something you and i superimpose on it um is probably true just as there's no real space i mean jesse you're probably less than 100 miles from me that's a negligible amount of space um we, we we're in the same quantum field um and so it, is it possible to i mean essentially what you're doing is converting time into energy which is it possible to look through uh, that field and pick up this other event that to us we're going to categorize as the future, but is actually happening right now, just like everything else from the Big Bang to universal heat death. Not with my equipment. I, I, I haven't been able to do that yet. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling it's uh, it's beyond my capabilities uh, in any time in the near future, but uh, maybe the near future is a lot uh, closer to the far fast. I, I really, it, it gets, it gets a bit trippy, but I, I can see why people sort of, like, I've read a lot of the reviews of this, trying to understand what's going on, and uh, everybody seems to have a different take on it. And I, I think that might be because they're not reading it closely enough. You know, is it's not a time slip because it's not the same guy. Right. But, but the echoes of it being the same guy, it's, 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 it's sort of um, hard to classify. Maybe this is uh, we talked about slipstream stories not that long ago. This this is kind of a fantasy story, I guess. I don't know. Right. I mean the yes. Uh, the problem with it is that you you can you know you can trade space for time and time for space, or you can trade matter for energy or energy for matter. But you can't trade time for energy, which is what would have to happen in order for you to put that thought in my head mm. in order for me to have the precognitive event. So I, I just think that um, it's an easily dismissed story. And um, a lot of people take that route. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like maybe that's the proper route in a sense. I, um, but I also think that uh, there's something special going on and it. it's just perhaps it's not as deep as, as uh, uh, I, he, he may have been able to expand it in a, or contract it in a way to make it 
um, more resonant. And it, it, it isn't a classic. Uh, I'd never heard of it before I came across it. In you know, uh, I think you, you, you took it out of a 10 minutes, uh, short stories collection. I found it in an yeah. adventure stories collection or something like that. And, um, it's just an old public domain story that nobody's remembers except it, it, it has this, this strange phenomenon happening that I haven't seen in a lot of stories. I, yeah, I, so, I mean, I, I agree. It's, it's strange, but it's strange because we can't actually define what it is. We can't decide whether it's a precognitive event or a time slip or any of those things. So it's not fitting the conventional rules that, uh, we use to, to judge these things when we read similar stories. And that's probably due to the fact that it was at the genesis of all this. And, mm. um, I don't, I don't dislike the story. I don't see it as a, a, a real liability or a real benefit. It's a cipher. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's an accountant. <laughs> he's an accountant yeah. on vacation. He has this weird stuff happen to him. A couple weeks later, he reads in the newspaper that uh, what he thought was uh, the, the what he thought was weird stuff turns out to be true that's it that's the entire story correct correct and and i think that the if there's a lesson or a moral or whatever it is it's it's what do you do when you have one of these events and you can't prove it and most people on the planet don't believe that these events occur um do you try and save the guy or do you think it was just you know you being weird um, and you only have a limited amount of time, so you have to make up your mind really quickly. Um, and, and that's the point. It's, it's set the premise up, you know, um, what the hell is the name of that story? There's a story called the moment of truth. And it's by somebody called Stanley Elkin, I think. And I'm, I'm really going back here. Um, there used to be collections of stories that, the network refused to allow Hitchcock to do on his show and he would collect them and say, you know, here's 20 stories. The network wouldn't let me do and put them out as a series of books. And I saw it in one of them and it's essentially uh, a bet. The story, you know, big, big castle, big dinner, famous people at it. And one guy's the world famous, you know, the best escape artist in the world. And um, the other guy's a major sportsman and rich guy and they make this bet that you know in the basement of the house is a is a a room in the corner where they used to torture slaves and they lock you up in it and it has whatever 60 minutes worth of air and then you die and and so the story takes you all the way up to the edge where it's it's 59 minutes and 59 seconds um the guy you can hear him screaming for help but the way the bet was arranged it's that he gets out, not not that he gets out as an escape artist. He could get out any way he wants. And so screaming for help and having them come in and get him <laughs> would make him win the bet. Right. And it takes you up to that point, and then the story ends. That's it. You don't know whether the guy goes and opens the door or not. So the reason the network wouldn't do it is because they don't want to leave the audience unsatisfied. <laughs> I don't. Maybe, maybe there were most of those stories were too gruesome, or or it was just too macabre for you know CBS in the fifties. Um, but 
but I'm just saying this, this, it, it, it set up the premise and then essentially ended by saying, well, what would you do? Hmm. And, and I think that's a component in yeah. the message of this story is, you know, okay, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. Somebody's going to die. Do you do anything about it? Or do you think you're just weird? Well, um, the other, the other story that I, I would say that this sort of reminds me of is a much more famous one. It's, uh, an occurrence in Owl Creek bridge, uh, yeah. by Ambrose Bierce. And yep. that, that, that one doesn't, you know, it doesn't go the same way. It's not about precognition, but it certainly is about, you know, sort of a, a journey that is uh, dreamy. <laughs> right. Well, he lives a whole nother life. Right. In in that second before the trap door opens. But the, the furnishings of that life are are taken from imagination, his his own history and also the the slowed down phenomenon and it starts with the ticking of his watch right there's this pounding this slow pounding that he can hear that's you know deafening him and it's it's his watch in his pocket he can hear it ticking because it's so quiet right and that's his life ticking away right i again i i think this is about time being an illusion it, <laughs> he's, it doesn't... he's 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 coming to see the illusion of time yeah well it that the fact that we create time just to order our universe doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances where our logic falls apart because we created this thing. It's not real. It feels so real. it does, but there's going to be cracks. And, and this is the beginning of when people started to realize that, you know, there weren't enough empirical measures in order to figure out um, you know, in order to make the whole structure logically hold together, it makes more sense. And we would need way more than the time of this podcast to explain that everything happens at once. Time is a serious problem in, in the mathematics of the universe. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>